unless you spread your wings, you've no idea how far you can fly. Hmm. So it's on the same theme as before. You know, you've no idea what you can do unless you explore every single opportunity. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds podcast, the definitive show of the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Max Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital world. Our guest this week is a data center legend, and he is the man responsible for matching talent with the right job, setting the foundations for hundreds of data center businesses to succeed. He has worked for Societe Generale, Waterfields, Schneider Electric, and data center people, amongst others, and today runs Portman Partners, a boutique executive search and strategic advisory firm focused on the digital infrastructure sector worldwide. I'm talking, of course, of Peter Hannaford. Peter, welcome to the GBM podcast. Hello, Joe. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> nice to have you. I mean, how are you? How have you done? Um, how have you been over the last 18 months um, once the world has gone upside down? Um, it's, been, it's been okay, really. I mean, you know, the kind of job that I'm doing now means... Uh, ideally, you'd want to meet people face to face with when you're headhunting at this level. But because, uh, again, at this level, I probably know most of the people anyway. It's a you know, it's a very it's a very uh, closed group, really. Um, it's it's a very small number of people that work at that level. So if I don't know them, I'll probably know someone that does know them. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, video is become. Um, you know the way of the world now, so we've got used to it, and it and it works quite well. So it hasn't really impacted me uh, at all. In fact, it's made us made the job a lot easier because when you're working in the Far East and, and the US, time was always, or certainly the distance was always a bit of a barrier. Now we can do everything online. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, and but it's a bit good to go back to a bit of more face to face. Yeah, I, I miss I miss the conferences. I miss the you know the the, the camaraderie. I miss the pubs. You know the the mm. going for drinks with people, and that's yeah, that's how you develop relationships. So that bit is definitely uh, yeah. I can't wait for that to get back. But uh, before we jump into um, Portman, let's um, let's hear about you um, and how you got involved with the industry. I mean, you've been ahead of a lot of trends in the industry over the last few decades. Um, you set up, you did some pioneering work in Nigeria in the nineteen seventies. Um, around the first online banking system. You've developed foreign exchange systems for international banks in the 80s. Um, you've started Europe's first data center construction firm in the 90s. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. You're basically like, you know everything about this industry and you know everyone, as you said. Um, I mean, if you don't, you probably know someone that, that you need to know. Um, how did you get into this space in the first place? Well, as you say, I mean, I, I've got, as you say, an IT background anyway, so I was always in in IT, um, and uh, I worked for, you know, yeah, I worked for Societe Generale, then I got headhunted to um, to an, an Arab consortium bank, uh, which HQ in Paris, so I went to work for them. Then they got acquired. My life is a story of acquisitions, I think. <laughs> then they got acquired by a much bigger bank, and uh, I'd always sort of fancied doing something myself. I've always had that sort of little entrepreneurial streak and I had the opportunity to uh, to get made redundant, and they were very generous with their redundancy package. So uh, I, I decided to leave, and I, I set up a company called Waterfields. Um, I had this idea that companies that were moving around, um, you know, it, it, when companies moved, they always seemed to miss the important bit, which was the IT bit. So when they moved, you know, they were always focused on the desks and the chairs and the partitioning. But, you know, if on day one, uh, you know, your your IT systems aren't working, it's a bit serious. So, you know, so the idea was you, you focus on the on the important bits and, you know, if necessary, you sit on orange boxes when you move. So um, so I set up Waterfields and, and our our USP is that we would also do, you know, phone systems, networks, dealing rooms, you know, those kind of computer rooms. So that was always part of what we did. And then we did that you know fairly successfully and then along came this dot-com boom in the, in the mid-90s and i thought hey here's an opportunity so rather than have you know computer rooms as part of what we do why don't we just focus on these big 
computer rooms. Mm. I don't know where data centre had been deployed yet at that point. But we set, I set up um, a division called Waterfields Tech. And what we did is we designed, uh, yeah, bigger, bigger computer rooms. And then somebody trundled along and said that they found this building. Uh, it was a guy that had, um, he had a couple of racks at Telly House. And he said, I'm paying a fortune for these racks. I want to build my own little little data center somewhere. So can you do that? And we said, sure. Uh, and what started off as a little data center, you found this building down in Docklands called City Reach. And he said, can you turn that into a data center? He said, of course we can. That's not <laughs> uh, so we built uh, that data center on the back of a cigarette packet, really. We made it up as we went along. I mean, we hired some pretty good people. We had consulting, we had some engineers and some design people working for us. But I mean, it was uh, literally, yeah, it was it was put together pretty quickly. And uh, at that point, you know, we had um, the data center business was just just started to get going. And somebody then had seen what we were doing and said, um, well, in fact, it was it was uh, it was Global Switch. Uh, Andy Ruin, who was running Global Switch, knocked on the door and said, you know, look, I'm building uh, I'm building out for Global Switch. I've seen you. You've built this data center. You started after us. You finished before us. Uh, I'm building four data centers around Europe. Can you come and can you come and do one for me? And I said, yeah, of course I can. So he said, well, you know, I'm building in. Uh, I think it was Frankfurt, um, uh, Amsterdam, Paris, um, and somewhere else. I can't remember. Uh, where it was but anyway I said ah oh, you know I've worked in Paris for a long I've worked for the French I know France I know Paris lived there for a bit let's do Paris you know well I mean afterwards I could have shot myself in the head because um, it was probably the most difficult building a data center in the middle of Paris uh, with all the regulations and you can only work 35 hours a week and no noise and all that other stuff it was quite difficult but anyway we so we built we built we started off we found we found premises for for Andy, and that was that became that became Global Switch's Paris operation. And then, a few months into that, he said, "You know, you're doing a great job. I'd like you to build uh, Amsterdam for us now." So, off we go, and we're now building Amsterdam. So my little company's gone from like a handful of people to about 150 people. Our turnover went from nothing to 200 million dollars in like three years, um, <laughs> and we were away. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I wish I could say the same. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people like to say the same. There's massive growth, um, yeah, especially in the early days. Unfortunately, we didn't make a lot of money. Um, so, uh, you know, so while the turnover was good, the profit wasn't great. I mean, it was a, it was a tiny profit. It was embarrassing. Um, and then, of course, in 2000, it all fell off a cliff anyway. So people stopped building data centers. Hmm. Um, so we decided, I mean, when I say stopped, it, it changed a little bit. So... I set up a company to um, to design and manage. So instead of being a main contractor, we we do what they call that management contracting. So we'd be the we'd be overall managing the project. Somebody else would be building it. We'd manage them. Uh, we'd manage the client. We'd manage the costing. Um, and that was for Czech Telecom in Prague. And that went that went beautifully well. I mean, that was on time, on budget. Um, and it was during that time when we were trying to find, uh, you know, smart ways of building data centers, you know, modular ways, could we build these things a lot smarter, you know, by room, by row, by floor. Uh, and then we thought, you know, why don't we, why don't we build them by a rack? Why don't we develop a rack that's got its own cooling system? So that's, that's what we did. We, we designed, I worked with, with Tony Day, who was our kind of CTO, um, and he'd come up with this idea of this rack with its own cooling system, uh, it was it was in a magazine somewhere. I got a call from APC. They said, you know, we like this idea, uh, and uh, you know, six months later they bought the company. So, um, along with along with this 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 rack, and that that's what became. I mean, the, what they liked was the fact that the, the the it had a vertical cooling coil inside the rack. So it wasn't so much the you know the single rack it like they liked. They liked the the cooling technology and what we did was we took the we took the coil off out of the rack we separated it as a separate unit and that became apc's kind of in-road cooling uh, so that was that was pretty successful and that was that was a great time so if they we kind of sort of evolved in, in you know you asked me how i 
how I got into it, I kind of fell into it, you know, like most people did. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say. <laughs> no, um, I didn't set out to work in data centres. Um, so, uh, so that was it, yeah. So I worked for, um, worked for APC, then APC got bought by Schneider. I went to Schneider. Uh, Schneider wasn't the right kind of company for me. Brilliant company, great company, but totally different to APC. Uh, you know, much more regimented, a bigger company, you know, yeah, you come from a company huge. of like 4,000 people to a company of 150,000 people. Um, and I couldn't do what I did at APC, obviously, within Schneider. So anyway, I left Schneider and didn't quite know what to do, but had a had a black book with lots of names in it and thought, uh, you know, maybe there's a market for a, a recruitment company. I couldn't find any recruitment company that specialised in data centres. So, uh, you know, always the best way to, to find out if somebody's doing it is just to is to is to think of a name and then see if there's a URL available. So, you know, I remembered computer people from way back. That they, they were one of the originators of staff in the computer industry. And I, yeah. I thought, well, I wonder if there's a data center people. And there wasn't. So we we pinched that and started data center people in uh, 2010. So uh, yeah. that's how it all started, really. And I mean, and it was pretty much unique to the whole market until maybe the last two years um, when smaller agencies start showing. So um, it, it really shows you were well ahead um, of where the sector was going and understanding the needs as well. Because um, at the end of the day, I mean, you might have the latest um, technology in your data center, but if you don't have the skills, then technology is not really going to do um, the job properly because you need people there to also run into and build it. Yeah, and I think because, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm not an engineer. Um, oh, I'm not <laughs> I don't even talk engineerish. Having <laughs> been through, you know, having actually built built data centres, um, you know, been there, you know, bashing holes in walls and helping uh, the people that did know, um, you know, you do understand the basics about data centres. And we are the only firm still that has, you know, that really knows the industry. And I think that's what gives us the edge when it comes to finding people. No, no, absolutely. I mean, and I've seen you in action um, at several conferences over the years as well. So um, you're very well regarded and connected in the industry. So I'm sure people know you and people know who to come for when it comes to recruitment. Um, but look, we've, we've talked about how you're going to it and how you evolved over the years and always coming up with new ideas as well, um, especially after even the, the dot-com bubble um, and then after Schneider. How do you kind of go around when things have to change or are they forced on you to change? What keeps you motivated? Um, how do you keep going when you get to those to those limits? I'm saying limits, limits is probably a very strong word. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it, well, I think exactly that. You know, when things change, there's new challenges. I like, I like challenges. I like, I like, um, I like work. I like, I don't know why. Work has always been my hobby. I, you know, I played a bit of golf and you know, didn't get into tennis or anything else. I, I just like work. My, my wife always used to say to me, you know, why, why do you work these silly hours? Even when you're working for someone else. I mean, this is what spawned the idea of, you know, why don't I work for myself? I'm working, you know, silly hours working for other people. She said, if you were, she said, I, I always think if you were a postman, you know, you get to the end of the day and you go look for more letters to deliver. Why do you, you know, why are you constantly doing it's it? Point. <laughs> I suppose it's just a, it's just a hobby. You know, it, it, it's a hobby, and I always like I like starting new businesses. I mean, I've, I'm always thinking about new businesses. I mean, so even now I've probably got you know three or four uh, ideas. Uh, you know, I'll I'll buy websites um, or buy URLs. Um, you know, just in case something happens. Um, yeah, it's just a bit of a hobby, really, of mine, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I, I agree with you, and I can see myself in you in that sense, because I also love um, even just the process of thinking something up. Even if you don't do it, it's just nice to think of something, coming up with a name, coming up with a structure, coming up with a recent strategy, um, looking at the market, and then it does not mean that you're going to do it, but it's, um, it's a nice exercise, and it keeps you going as well, and new ideas will generate even more new ideas. Um, but talking about new ideas as well, I mean, of course, we've spoken about some of your ideas, um, especially around recruitment, and I think it's been brilliant over the last 10 years as well. Um, but what's been, what would you say, 
beyond the rack and recruitment, what would you say has been your biggest haha moment? Um, and what's your thought process to really come up with these ideas? I mean, that's a good one. Um, biggest, uh, I, um, I suppose, um, thinking back, um, I suppose the realization what, when I was at APC and we're, we're, we're looking at you know, cooling, cooling technology, um, the realization that the data centers you know, didn't need to be cooled down to 15 degrees. Um, and in fact, it was, I, I can't remember how we got onto this, but we suddenly realized that, in fact, we were looking at this the wrong way around. We're looking at cooling. We're looking at pumping cold air into a data center rather than removing hot air and if you think about if you think about that if you think about a data center in terms and the specifically the cooling part that it that you know you all you're doing here is removing excess hot air and once you start thinking about that side of it it puts an entirely different lens on on the data center itself you think differently about it um, and I suppose that was the, the big idea for me. We ended up, I mean, I banned the work, use of the word cooling. Once we'd, once we'd all, you know, had this big moment, well, you're right, you know, this is, it's heat removal, it's not cooling. So data centers don't <laughs> need to be 15 degrees. And in fact, Ashtray, you know, with, with um, you know, with their thermal guidelines, when they, uh, when they also said, you know, look, servers and, and routers and storage devices don't need to be chilled like this. You know, they operate in environments quite happily at 25 degrees. Um, and at that point, you think, yeah, you're right. So, in fact, we, if, you know, 25 degrees in, in the UK is a some summer's day, we'll all put our swimming shorts on. You know, it's, <laughs> you don't need to cool down to 25 degrees. And I think once you start, as I say, I suppose that was the, that was the biggest moment then, just this realisation that um, we're looking at this a different way. Now you start thinking about heat removal. You're now looking more at the server. You're looking at, you know, it's the exhaust air from the server you need to remove. Uh, you know, pumping air in at 25 degrees, that's that's quite okay. Um, as long as you're not recycling air and you're removing the unwanted heat. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was a that was a, an interesting thing. But more recently in 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 the recruitment world, especially with, with Portman, I mean, we're we're very much focused now on um, on obviously digital infrastructure and leadership and diversity inclusion, which is huge, uh, and sustainability. They're kind of the four the four pillars of, of the business now. And yeah, yeah. and in terms of diversity, we work a lot with um, Terry Simpkin, who, who you know and. Terry, Dr. Simpson. Yeah. Dr. Simpkin is is uh, a, a fantastic character, um, and her her big thing has always been you know the gender imbalance in our in our industry. Why are more women working in our industries? That's her thing, and I can remember you know me saying to her, "Look, the problem, Terry, is you know you're asking why there aren't more women in the industry because they're not they're not there. Uh, you know, so if only six percent of qualified engineers in the UK uh, are women." And we're looking for a qualified engineer you know when you get to you know 10 somebody wants to see 10 resumes they're not going to be there's not going to be any women there statistically um and she being an australian and the way australians explain things to you she held me up against the wall <laughs> by the neck <laughs> and, and said to me peter you know she said peter you don't understand women think differently to men and I said, look, I've been married, believe it or not, I've been married 50 years. Don't you think I know that right now? <laughs> but um, it was a kind of epiphany because I thought, actually, she's right. If we're looking for uh, innovation, we need to think differently. We want new thoughts. And the way to think differently is to get people that think differently. And that's so diversity. For, so the aha moment for me was that diversity isn't a matter of ticking boxes, you know, no, in terms of it. It's thinking, and obviously, people that come from different backgrounds naturally think differently, and that's the, the reason why we push very strongly now to have uh, diverse boards because it's you'll never get innovation unless you've got unless you've got diversity of thinking. 
Yeah, and, and I guess it's also being inclusive and allowing people to be not just part of it, but once they are part of it, to really speak out um, in whatever position they are, even if it's not a boardroom level position. If it starts with a lower position, let those people talk and let them share their ideas. Um, and that goes beyond, I guess, the gender um, disparity in the industry well, as well. It goes into. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I just use that as an example, <laughs> but you know, diversity is it's across the board yeah. diversity now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you spoke about being married for 50 years with your wife. I'm, I'm sure she has a lot of patience for all your travels and all your work calls. It's like a one or two o'clock in the morning, um, <laughs> especially in the last 18 months. Uh, how do you balance your work life with your, um, with your, with your private life? Uh, I, I don't say, I don't know if it's a balance, it's more integration. It's part of my, mm -hmm. part of the job. They all know that, all the family know that, that you know, I can't go on holiday. I couldn't possibly go away somewhere where there's no internet. I mean, I've got to have, we've got to have Wi-Fi. I always go laden down with laptop, iPad, phone, you know, the whole lot. I said, I, I should move my office and they know that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to be with them. I'm always having to dash off for a, a call or something, but it's just part of life, but it, but it works quite well. I mean, we can work, we work, we work quite happily doing that. So I think they've just got, it's just part of life. You've got used to it. I don't, I don't, you know, as you say, traveling, not so much now anyway. I suppose when I was younger, uh, yeah, that was, that wasn't, too, that wasn't the good bit was, was traveling uh, quite a lot, being away quite a lot. Um, and, you know, you don't need to do it now anyway. So I think that's, that's the bit that's improved. Um, but no, I think they're quite happy. They're quite happy with, you know, with the results you know it's earned me a living for the last <laughs> years. um and you know have a nice out i mean we've got the you know we benefits of working hard and and being in the right place at the right time all those kind of things so they're not they're not complaining hmm. i'm sure they can't complain <laughs> as well um, i can but um <laughs> uh, but look and now a couple of questions a bit more towards the, when things don't go so right. Uh, in terms of fear, it's natural for human beings to feel fear, um, especially in the business environment. How do you manage fear um, within the business world? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're um, an entrepreneur, and I, I suppose, I suppose I am. Um, you are. <laughs> uh, you, you, you you fear obviously business failure that's what you want you, you don't want your business to fail and you do everything possible to stop that happening and therefore you know you've always got a contingency plan you've always got the next business i think that you're if this doesn't work what am i going to do da, 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 da. i'll have to do this um if you can't think of what to do that's the biggest fear i think what am i going to do and i, and I have been in that situation where i just i didn't know what i was going to do the, the business wasn't going very well we're going back a few years now um, in, in the days of main contracting, really. Business isn't going very well. Um, you know, I, I can't see us getting out of this. What am I going to do next? Uh, I just don't know what to do. And my wife would come in and say, what's the matter with you? I said, well, I, you know, she said, snap out of it. Of course, it's going to be all right. Just get on with it. And I said, <laughs> I said oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it, somehow... <laughs> when they say that, you can't say anything back. <laughs> now, somehow you know we've managed to we've managed to get out of it get over it but yeah that's 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 been a big that, that was a big worry I, I haven't had that sort of worry for a long time now um i think you learn you just learn to be more careful really um and think ahead you know you've always got to think ahead what happens if things change i, I mean i've got obviously i've got to the point in life now where the kids have grown up and they don't live at home anymore uh, it's now grandchildren time, um, so the pressures on on, uh, on on you know keeping the job and the salary are not as great as you get past a certain age that I am now. So it's I, I, it's for me now it's a bonus. So I, I've I've gone past that. It, there's no I don't have any fear anymore about you know um, business failure because. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think it will happen and it'll be my choice next time to decide to, you know, finally give up the ghost and and uh, go and play football. 
<laughs> enjoy. Um, no, but I think that's really good advice. Um, always have a black book with you, even if you're just starting a new business and just start keeping ideas down, putting ideas down just in case something happens because you'll make life a lot easier if something goes south um, in the future, if you already have an idea of what could come next. Um, but speaking of that, I mean, we, of course, we've spoken about you also having very busy days, um, especially before COVID. Um, in terms of also business and setting up businesses and being part of a business, what is something that is not negotiable for you, um, something that you would not compromise on? Um, I think it's really uh, honesty and transparency. You know, the, the old story that, you know, you never know where you're going to meet people again. If you, uh, if you treat somebody badly or uh, you have a, a bad experience uh, and you're at fault some, somehow, um, you never know where you're going to meet that person again, on the way up or on the way down. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, I think honesty and transparency are, are one thing. I, you know, we, we like to think that with recruitment, we're, we're business partners. I, you know, when we're hiring for a firm, I'm thinking I'm part of the, that particular firm and I'm representing that firm. On the other hand, um, if I thought that firm, if, if it's a startup, you know, it's a very nice startup, it looks good. And then you're talking to some candidates, maybe some of them have been with firms for, you know, 10, 15 years. I do think very carefully about uh, talking to them, about them, you know, persuading them to leave a good job uh, where they've been for a long time and going to a company that it might be a bit of a risk obviously so um yes look a, a caring recruiter that's not i mean i'm not sure well i don't i never look at it as a transaction this isn't just a way of of you know placing someone and and um and, and sending them the invoice uh, i do really i do really care believe it or not about oh, I, I believe in you to be honest about candidate and about getting the right candidate into the right position as well i mean you know as you as i said before uh, you know um, the, the, the traditional way of, of recruiters finding people is through LinkedIn, but they know nothing about that particular person. They wouldn't know what they're capable of doing. They, the CV only tells you what they've done. It doesn't tell you what they're capable of doing. I like to think with us, you know, I know these people a little bit better. I know what they're capable of doing. And therefore, sometimes, yeah, we do. I do try and persuade them that this is a brilliant opportunity for them. You should, you should think about it. But if I, if I had any doubt about uh you know the viability of a new business it, it would be a, i'm not saying oh, we wouldn't do it but it would be a slightly different candidate someone that understands that and maybe he's just left something and is now looking for a new opportunity and then you put them together um so yeah i think i think it's the transparency and, and openness that i don't yeah. i don't think i would uh, tolerate yeah i mean i completely agree and i think that's the most important pillar um, of business is honesty and transparency um, and before we do a very quick break, um, just for a partner ads, uh, what would you say is the one thing the entrepreneurs, young and old, need to know about digital infrastructure today? Um, well, the fact that it's uh, it's constantly changing. No, the lens on it is constantly changing. The actual business itself hasn't changed a lot. The, the basic business um, of you know storing data and transmitting data. Um, and compute has not changed a lot, but it's the lens on the business that's changed. You know, the language that we use. I mean, we've had, you know, enter we started with enterprise data centers and, and then we went to Colo and, and then we had time sharing and then thin client and, you know, application service provider. Um, and then we had cloud, uh, you know, they're all kind of words that we, we kick around. Um, you need to understand what, what they all mean. Then we had large scale, uh, you know, large scale uh, uh, hosting, you know, Equinix, DLR, you've got hyperscale, you've got edge, which is really, you know, it's almost going back to enterprise. Again. Yeah. <laughs> you've got SAS, you've got PAS. I mean, the language is huge, but it's, it's basically, don't be confused by the language. You know, you need to understand the, the basic underlying and infrastructure and, and you you know before you do anything you need to know more about the business before you you do anything else 
Yeah, I think it's absolutely true as well. And um, it's common for us to see sometimes people coming into the industry for the first time um, and they look scared because they're completely taken back by the amount of jargon and words and things to learn about the industry. Um, but it seems, at least on average, it seems to take about just six months um, to really understand um, the entire industry if you really put effort into it. So it's not a scary industry, it's still a young industry as well, um, which allows a lot of space for people to change things around and make their own mark. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, Peter, well, but before we continue, um, here's a very quick message from our partner in Borden. Are your onboarding processes built for a world that no longer exists? Emborder is the first experience-driven onboarding platform and is a new way businesses onboard. Emborder's platform emphasizes the value of human connection and experience, putting the employee at the center of everything we do. With Emborder, you can turn new hires into highly engaged long-term employees and managers into onboarding rock stars. We're living in an experience era your employee expectations are higher than ever. So don't lose out on top talent and check out Emborder today. See the description for more information. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Peter Hannaford. Um, Peter, let's now move more towards the industry. We've, we were talking about um, what entrepreneurs need to know about the digital infrastructure space. Um, but now let's talk about this space um, in, in depth. Um, do you think the real world, and by real world, I mean people that are not involved with the data center slash digital infrastructure space, do you think they're well educated enough about the role of digital infrastructure in their own lives? Uh, I think they, they, they do, but they don't, uh, they're not sure where it comes from. They don't care where it comes from. Yeah. And, you know, we all, you, you can't do anything these days without using digital infrastructure. Not a thing can you do, whether it's you know, I often think about, I was explaining this to a friend the other day. I said, you know, I, they were having trouble with their internet. I said, you know, you know, if the internet went down, what do you think would happen? He said, well, nothing. That's I said, okay, <laughs> yes. I said, actually, you need to think about this because, you know, A, you wouldn't be able to get any, you know, groceries from the store. That, you, know, you wouldn't be able to get any petrol for your car after a little while. You know, that whole supply chain depends on the internet. You wouldn't be able to draw any money out of the bank you know you'd actually uh you it wouldn't be too long before you'd have to get your shotgun out and because people would be coming you know to they think you've got money and houses and food they'd be they'd be up it could be very serious this you know this, this internet thing so um I, I don't think people i don't think people really understand no the um you know the infrastructure that supports it everybody has got phones and streaming tv and stuff but no they uh, they don't know where it comes from, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure it would. It, it makes any difference if they did. That, that was my next question. I was going to ask if you think they should know a bit more, um, or if you'd like them to know a bit more. No, not really. I mean, I think you know they know what they know. You can't, you know, you can't teach people. If people want to know, I'd, I'd be delighted. Where where I I would like to educate people more is that it's in is in schools and in primary schools. You know, the kids are, are fanatical about. You know, they're playing games. I mean, my, my eight-year-old grandson spends, I think, far too much time on <laughs> Fortnite and this other stuff that they do, you know, with his headphones on. The good thing is that it's not it's not alone. He's got his pals that he, he's talking to all the time. So it's it's more social than anything else. Um, so, but I think it would be useful for them to know because it would then spur them on to, uh, you know, entering this industry whichever part of it is as a career i think we, we you know we do need to start getting in uh, earlier just just for thinking about you know jobs and careers rather than you know do they need to know about it because it's going to help them in their in their work probably not but yeah i, I think um from that point of view it, it would be useful but as i say at a much earlier stage than uh than, than the general public Hmm. Yeah, well, because I guess then that would also help in terms of um, diversity and inclusivity yeah. um, in the next couple of decades. Um, so it does make sense. And what you said about kids playing um, things like Fortnite and everything and talking to a lot of other people. I, I recently met someone that also has a kid that plays a lot of video games. When COVID lockdown started, um, they were saying, well, why don't you come and talk to us? And you're like, well, I'm actually speaking to 20, 25 people around the world. COVID hasn't really changed anything for me. <laughs> this, this is normal life. 
Um, and this, this is reality. Um, I think COVID came to show a little bit of that as well. Um, I mean, speaking of COVID, COVID has also had um, uh, an impact to a certain degree in our industry, um, probably more positive than, than anything else, really. Um, how would you describe um, the market today? Um, and I mean, this question can now go on for hours <laughs> because things are changing from an investor perspective, things are changing from a location perspective, um, from a boardroom perspective as well, skills perspective. Um, give me your roundup um, of how you see the market today. Well, if you st I, suppose, I suppose you've got to start with, you know, with the drivers, I suppose, which is, um, uh, you know, increasing, uh, you know, we've already said, you know, life, life needs digital. So, you know, we've got, got increasing you've got IoT, video streaming. Uh, you know, I suppose that's the biggest thing. People have in, they've been in and they're just watching lots and lots of TV on demand. You know, you buy a TV today, I bought a new TV the other day, and now there's a button on the on the remote that says Netflix. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's amazing. On your remote control, Netflix, um, you know, Amazon Prime Video, they're all on that button. Yeah, so really built in, yeah. Video streaming is now is now part of it. Um, so, you know, they're the, I suppose they're the biggest drivers now. Um, market growth is very much, I think, um, the geographic you've got to look at the geography today you know there's a population today of, of uh, 8 billion um, about 5 billion uh, you could class as internet users there's a very uh, high penetration rate in in uh, Europe and uh, and the Americas um, Asia is to me the biggest potential market I mean the population of uh, 4 billion and only half of them are on the internet so that is that's got the lowest penetration rate apart from africa in the world so you know in, in geographical terms asia is where it's all going to happen so uh, it's still in yeah in in terms of that's right in terms of new users in terms of you know existing users using more of it uh that's just going to grow like topsy I, I mean i i can't see it plateauing out at the moment i'm sure it will somebody will, mm. will do a sort of moore's law graph and find out you know it can't double every 18 months but um that seems to be the way it's going at the moment <laughs> oh no no absolutely i mean and and you we've seen when it comes to large-scale operators as well the amount of um, infrastructure infrastructure that they've been bringing online um over the last 18 months just to grow up with demand um I'm yeah yeah and, and i guess once i mean even once covid is over um I don't know if it's going to be a plateau, if we're just going to slow down the growth, but it will never come down from the plateau. This is the thing. This It will never go down in terms of usage. Um, and I think that's a very exciting thing um, about the sector. And as populations grow and more people come online, especially in Africa, in, um, well, Southeast Asia first and then Africa, um, I guess there's really like a long-term case to be part of this sector. Um, but, being part of the sector, let's talk about skills as well, because um, and this is your expertise now. Uh, how does this, how does all this change um, and dependence on digital infrastructure will reflect um, on what you do and finding the people with the right skills? Well, I mean, you'll see lots of, I mean, you know, every time there's a conference, somebody is complaining about, you know, this massive shortage of talent. Um, I mean, I we we haven't seen it. Uh, but I suppose we're at a different level. I think when people talk about the massive shortage of talent, they're talking about lower down. They're talking about technicians. Um, and yes, they, they, I suppose if you did the, you know, looked at the stats and the calculations, there should be a, a shortage. But then there's, uh, you've got to compensate that with, um, with transferable skills as well. So, you know, with oil and gas going down, uh, you know, there's a lot of skills that are the same, oil, gas, nuclear, hospitals, um, you know, all those skills really apply to mission critical as well. Um, but at, at top level, uh, yeah, we, we haven't seen it. I mean, mainly because it's it's kind of moving around a bit. Um, people in our in our industry are very mobile. I mean, in, you know, the industry, the, the internet is mobile. So when we look for people, um, we look, we don't look, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the pond that surrounds you know, where the job is. We look in the, 
in the ocean, fishing the whole oceans of the world. Um, I mean, we placed somebody, uh, a, a, a CEO we placed in Thailand, we found in, um, uh, in Curacao, a little island off the coast of Venezuela. You can't get, you can't get much further apart than that because we were looking <laughs> for the kind of people that we thought could welcome an opportunity of going somewhere else and starting again. Uh, and as I said, at, at, at that top level, uh, people are more more mobile. They're, they are willing to move families, you know, across continents for the right job, to work with great companies for great compensation. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that will continue. Obviously, politics plays a large part in, in terms of, you know, countries where people are not so happy to go to. Uh, so, you know, particularly, you know, politically unstable countries, unstable, I should say. Um, and we've seen a lot of that with COVID. Uh, people that, uh, you know, are led by people that don't seem to care. Um, so you'd be concerned about going there. Um, but, uh, but that apart, no, I, I think we, we, haven't, we haven't struggled. We haven't failed to find anybody, uh, mm. you know, for good jobs. Um, so far um so I, I haven't no i mean it hasn't it hasn't impacted us too much but then as i say we're in a different level uh, now we're only looking at, at sea level it's it's uh, it's somewhat different uh, I, I was actually going to pick up on that as well um you're now only looking at sea level uh, what's been the, the process of shifting from um I don't know if you agree with me but from going for quantity in terms of recruiting people um so 20 people at a time for one business um, to going to Portman, where you really focus on this one person, uh, but that person has to be extremely good at what they do um, and really fit the job in the boardroom. Um, what's been the process, the, the shift going from there into people into Portman? Um, and maybe you could add in one thing that you've learned um, with Portman so far. Um, I think you need to be, in, in our business, you need to be, well, first of all, you need to be patient. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not like people are looking for you know it's not like there's there's a big uh there's a huge number of people that are looking for chief executives or you know so the numbers are a lot smaller so you need to be patient uh you can't force anybody until they're ready to look um so yes you're, you're sitting around you know a lot of the time waiting uh, fortunately it's worked quite well just as we've placed people somebody else will call you and say we're looking for someone so there's been that that nice balance. So we've been quite fortunate so far. Um, you also need to be a little tolerant as well. I think mm. because, uh, you know, in the early days, uh, I used to think I knew more about, I knew more than the client did about the kind of people they should be hiring. Um, and normally, and, and had to, um, you know, bite my tongue sometimes. Sometimes I didn't, which wasn't very good. You know, and I'd say, look, you've got to hire this person. They're brilliant. And it's, you know, well, I don't think they are, and <laughs> so you you've got to be you know gently persuasive. Uh, it comes back to this thing about um, uh, people's potential, <clears throat> and if you know them and you know what they've done and you know the history and you know the industry, you've got a much better view of of where this person might fit in a in a particular mm. organisation. Um, so um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's. Um, you know, it, it's it's patience and uh, persuasiveness that you have to gently persuading people that they should consider this, consider that, and don't don't reject people because uh, you know they haven't got uh, you know ITIL on their CV. Uh, you know, it's all about when we look for people, we look for people that. Uh, have intellect. Number one, they have to be smart, and you can't go on a course to learn to be smart. You know, you can't take a tablet. I mean, you know, so that's in your DNA. So people that are smart, um, people that are passionate about what they do, they're motivated. You know, those things are much more important than than what they've done before, um, because it doesn't tell you what they're capable of doing. So that those kind of things, I think. Of what you learn when you're dealing at a, a higher level it's not so much of a transaction not like i need 10 engineers tomorrow uh, and then you're racing around you know sending sending cvs in we never send you know if they're looking for someone 
we never send more than three or four resumes at a time um, because we're doing that filtering uh, in the meantime. But what happens is the cycle is a lot shorter then. You know, typically uh, we're, we're at about five weeks at the moment, you know, from, from getting assigned okay. to, uh, to finding, you know, right candidates that, are, you know, they're in the, the final throes of interview and negotiating on compensation, things like that. So, um, yeah, that's that's the, the main difference between the two, yeah. two types of operation. I, I don't really have the notion of the time scale. Is five weeks very fast? Is it standard? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, um, I mean, it can take three months. It can take six months. I mean, five. Mm -hmm. I'm saying four or five weeks before you get to the point of a, uh, you know, discussing an offer. A sit down. Oh, okay. Uh, it does that? Obviously, depends on the notice period of the candidate. You know, it can be a, a month. They can be doing nothing, um, which is you know unusual. Um, they can be doing nothing. They can be on a month's notice. It can be two months, three months, six months' notice in some cases. Hmm. And then they've got. They may have a. They may have a year's garden leave. You know, some some of these contracts are very, especially at sea level, uh, can be very long. Um, but um, yeah, so. Um, it's um, yeah, it's 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 different as well. It, you know, everyone is everyone is different. So it can. I mean, the, the fastest we've ever found somebody. I mean, we, when we were at data center, people. Uh, I remember we were at a, we were at a conference, and uh, there was an American exhibitor there who said they were looking for a VP of sales for EMEA uh, in 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 the electrical part of the business, and uh, uh, they. We told them what we did and we, we showed them the contract. They signed it. So they appointed us at the, On show. the trade floor. <laughs> uh, and then we went round uh, we went round the show and there was somebody on another booth and I said, Listen, we've got an interesting job for you. And then went back and said, uh, here's somebody you should talk to. And uh, and they hired they ended up hiring them. So they, <laughs> that's quick, that's very quick. It took about you know 30 minutes, but then and then they complained that you know why are they paying us this big fee when it only we only spent 30 minutes on it? And I was trying to explain, you know, we've actually spent I've actually spent 40 years doing this. So the reason um, why it's been done in 30 minutes is because of the experience. <laughs> if it's a, and if it's a sale, you know, if it's a sales job, you want somebody to start tomorrow because they're gonna start selling for you. So you should actually pay us more money than than uh, it's so it's not a it's not really a timing thing sometimes as I say you get lucky uh, I, I think there's every time I don't think without exception if someone's asked me uh, or we've got an assignment we're looking for a, whatever it is I will always have one or two people in mind immediately for that, hmm. for that job hmm. um, sometimes they get appointed sometimes we have to wait for more so I guess managers and employers when they see you walking around the trade floor they should be scared for their for their staff because yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might get poached. <laughs> okay, um, but I mean, we we briefly mentioned as well um, on how the um, the investment side of things in the industry is changing um, and the investor profile is changing. In terms of what you do, how has that kind of changed um, in terms of fighting the executives to work in this new kind of investment M and A private equity? Um, have you felt this sort of change in what you do or even when you look for people are people asking for people with even more finance background and coming like you say you look across the entire ocean not just within the data center pool so are people wanting more of those sort of people um i mean from a from a what's changed point of view obviously our target has has been are the investors really they're the people we want to work with and and all Without, I think, without exception, all of the the assignments we've had in the last twelve months uh, have been um, have been initiated by investment. They're, you know, somebody's either put more money in. They need, uh, you know, they need somebody to help them. You know, because you know the investors they've got all this money. There's nowhere else to invest your money at the moment. I mean, digital infrastructure is a the place to put your money, hmm. um, but you know as we said earlier not many people know enough about it they're not they're not you know that that knowledgeable sometimes so hey they may need people to help them understand the business 
So the, the investment groups themselves have been hiring people, but more commonly they're, they're acquiring companies, they're putting companies together uh, and they need to find you know, more talent to help them to grow that business and people that they're gonna that are going to um, you know look after their interests as well you know it's it's they're putting the money in they want somebody to make sure that their investment uh, is pretty safe so um, yeah that's um, that's been the change I think that it's much more investor driven in terms of candidates uh, not really I mean unless it's a CFO or CEO Hmm. Um, they're the people that really would know a little bit about the other side, but you'll rarely get a CFO that is an expert on data centers. You won't get a data center guy that knows too much about finance, depending on which, if it's the operating finance, if it's budgets, yes, of course. But in terms of investment and dealing with investors, uh, no, that, that's something entirely different. So they, they need to know a little bit about everything. Hmm. Um, but you won't get somebody that knows everything about everything. Yeah, um, and I think that's the niceness, um, if that word exists, um, the niceness of the, the industry and where we are with it, um, just coming to our early teams um, in terms of the data center world. Um, but Peter, let's talk about the future. We spoke about that black book of ideas. Um, you got Portman going as well. What are you working on and what's next for you? Uh, what, what other projects were you thinking that you could even might get into um, in the future? Well, I mean, we, we, we work very much on the um, on the demand side, if you like, people looking for, for people. Um, but we recently had a, a project in, in Asia where uh, people wanted to know uh, what was out there. They wanted to sort of map the market effectively. They were thinking of making a change. They wanted to know the kind of people that were there so we had to do it was a strange one because we had to prepare a, a list of candidates without actually talking to them <laughs> or, without talking to people that might know them and recommend them so it was just really a sort of subjective view of the market um and looking at people and saying here's the kind of people that we think you should be thinking about and it occurred to me that uh you know that, that there may be a lot of other firms like this that would be interested in having a bench but they want to put people on the bench they, they don't want to hire them yet but they want to know where they are mm. um, they want to know um, you know about the market where these pools of talent are and there certainly are geographically there are some countries where there's a huge amount of talent that's not being used and equally there's other countries where there's a dearth of talent so um, maybe something along that line you know salary compensation benchmarks uh, offering offering to do things without actually hiring people or even something aimed more at people that are on a uh, on a massive recruitment uh, 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 trajectory at the moment where our, our sort of financial model wouldn't work for them hmm. uh, but maybe something you know that was geared more to um, a consultancy um, uh, angle um, where we get continuity of revenue and maybe monthly retainers something like that um, where we're identifying people um, and less on the lumpiness of uh, typical uh, you know placements anyway, it sounds like you you've got something figured out so i'll be here to watch what you come up out with <laughs> uh, and peter throughout your career um, and your life what's been the best and the worst advice you've ever been given um, oh gosh, I, to be honest, I, I, I don't think I've ever listened to much. <laughs> I always think I know, I, I think people have, if, if I've, you know, if it's any, if there's any best advice, it's, it's something that supported an idea that I've already had in the first place. Hmm. Um, sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? I, I don't mean to be arrogant. Um, right, it's not. but it, most of the. Most of the things I do have come from within me. I, I'm very much a run it up the flagpole guy. And, what, and that's why a lot of, you know, a lot of successes we've had in businesses I've been in because there are other people there who start at the bottom of the flagpole and work their way up. I'm starting at the top saying, why don't we do that? And someone would say, uh, well, 
you can't do that because and if nobody can tell me why i shouldn't do it then we'll do it um but and I, I can't think of anything i mean the only one that's you know the only one that's ever given me any advice and support is to say i hate to say it, it's my wife i hope she's not listening <laughs> this she's the one that's um you know just told me to to get yeah. on you know, keep your head up uh what's the worst that can happen you know we're nobody going to starve um so stop worrying about things and just uh just get on and do it and i suppose that's um just do it i think that's the nike slogan isn't it it is yeah we probably can't use that one because of copyright I mean, can't do it. Uh, but but yeah some sort of paraphrasing of, yeah. of that. just yeah. just do it just just yeah just get on with it yeah 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 which i think is the best advice and also it is a very good advice to not get stuck with ideas because sometimes people yeah. do get stuck with ideas and until you until yeah there is a, a roadblock until you find a way that you can't do it um but find every single way you know to do it hmm. uh, and carry on until you get it done hmm. um, and peter what's your favorite quote um and by who and why uh, I suppose it's on the same theme. I'm, um, I don't read many books. Uh, I don't sort of get time. I start books. I've got about 10 books that I've started, but the, hmm. the only books that I've read recently, cover to cover, there's a, a books about Napoleon. I'm okay. a huge fan of Napoleon. What a the second one to say that in the space of a month. <laughs> yeah. There's four books, uh, by, um, forgotten the guy's name there, Frenchman translating in English. There's four volumes. It covers Napoleon's life hmm. from uh, more or less his life from when he was 13 and went to military school through to uh, well, through to exile when he died after yeah. Waterloo. Fascinating story. I mean, it's it's kind of, um, you know, these books that are, um, you know, based on history, but they're, they're, they're sort of fiction, faction. Uh, they're based on, on fact, but fascinating. Hmm. So Napoleon has always been a, always been fascinated by him. And he, it was him that said um, something like, um, unless you spread your wings, you've no idea how far you can fly. Hmm. So it's on the same theme as before. You know, you've no idea what you can do unless you explore every single yeah. opportunity. And that's, that would be my, I suppose my favorite quote. <laughs> which I think it makes absolute sense in our industry. Um, last question, and I promise I'll let you go. Um, what's the one thing that I have not asked you they would like to be asked? <laughs> people normally, the question that people always slot in there is uh, something like, um, you know, what would you like people to say about you when you when you're gone or something like this god no that's not what i meant <laughs> um, but yeah people often say you know how would you want to be remembered blah 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 um and the answer is i don't care what they say as long as they say something <laughs> um um i don't think i've got no i think you've you, you, you've done pretty well if you've got one up your sleeve then you'd like to fire at me. no this was my last one this is oh, not okay. uh we're not here to talk about exit strategies and all this sort of stuff i'll keep that for no, another no. time <laughs> no i mean just um just have fun as well i mean i i would say that you know i'm i'm i am a i am a, a warrior hmm. uh, and people often say to you you know don't worry about things that you can't change if you've got no influence over things you shouldn't worry easier said than done isn't it uh i've always been a bit of a warrior i i sleep you know, probably about five hours a night, I wake up, I check the phone, uh, you know, terrible. It, but it doesn't affect me. There are some people that if they can't sleep, they get up and walk around and make a cup of tea. I don't do that. Yeah, I don't no. lay there thinking about things really, but it's, there's nothing I can do. I've always been like that. So I'm still alive. Um, so um, no, nothing, nothing really, Joe. <laughs> Sounds good to me. It's, it's all relatable, to be honest with you. And sometimes the more you sleep, the more tired you get. It's completely the opposite. <laughs> um, okay, Peter, well, thank you so much for talking to me um, and for coming on the show as well and spending so much time talking about your experience and what you're doing at the moment. No, it's, it's great to talk to you. I like, as you know, I like, uh, 
I like chatting. I can't wait to, to um, you know, get back to the conference days when we can sit around and have a beer uh, and have no, a chat and a laugh and tell a few jokes as well. I haven't heard any many jokes lately. I used to be, uh, I used to love telling jokes. I've still got a few old ones in my locker, but yeah, <laughs> brilliant. I should have been a stand-up comic. Maybe that's my next my next role, stand-up yeah. comedian. I know. Well, I guess once we come out of the, the the whole thing, you're going to be the one on like on an improvised stage <laughs> on the trade floor. Okay, here, here, here you go. Give me, give me the mic. All right. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great to chat. Nice. It's been lovely having you. Thank you so much, Peter. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Do subscribe to the show and we invite you back again next week um, for the definitive show of the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.